This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. ValueHive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm Data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V-A-L-U-E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M-A-R-H-E-L-M.com to get your discount today. David Bastian of Kingdom Capital. This podcast happened because you tweeted uh, in response to one of my uh, questions. I, I asked basically, what's the most successful distressed investment that you've ever done? And you uh, wrote about Destination XL, ticker symbol DXLG. Uh, and you ended up making just buku money off this thing when it was priced for bankruptcy. And I thought it was a great opportunity to not only learn more about you um, as, as an investor and what you do at Kingdom Capital, but also to explore distressed investing a little bit deeper and to understand maybe the nuanced screening processes, investment analysis that goes into analyzing those types of situations versus your typical, hey, this thing's growing at 10 to 15%, profits are expanding, margins are expanding, you know, all the quality compounder stuff that you hear about so often. So before we dive into the ideas and distressed investing, let me get a background on who David Bastian is and how you started Kingdom Capital. Sure. Um, so yeah, prior to Kingdom Capital, I was working in uh, consulting, doing uh, M&A private equity work, uh, started managing my own portfolio more seriously during that time. 
um, was going pretty well. Um, and so I started kind of publishing more, started trying to build a track record, um, DXL being one of the um, best parts of that track record and probably uh, will be stuck as my best investment for a very long time. Uh, so yeah, started doing that and then launched Kingdom Capital uh, officially in January of last year, uh, which you know wasn't exactly the best time to be trying to roll out a new fund. Um, but fortunately, uh, we came out uh, with a lot of positions in coal and energy stuff. So uh, 2022 was not nearly as bad as it could have been. So um, yeah, we've been operating now for about a year and a half. And it's been fun uh, being able to do this full time. And I love it. Have you always been interested in investing or did you kind of meander your way through and find this as a as a passion later in life? I've wanted to do this for a while. So I was uh, kind of working my way through the how am I going to make being an investor full time happen uh, since, you know, probably late high school, early college was uh, pretty interested and just recognized I had a lot to learn before I really uh, got into it. If you could distill Kingdom Capital's investment framework philosophy in kind of one maybe short paragraph, how would you describe it? Um, I think we're, I had to think about one paragraph. Um, well, like many people in small caps, we're trying to go where other people aren't. We're trying to find opportunities that have more upside than downside. Um, we're trying to be concentrated enough that our good ideas actually work and have a material impact on, on our returns. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, it's not too unique. Um, but I think if you look at a lot of the stuff that we're invested in, um, it doesn't, pop up on a lot of other radars. So I think we've done a decent job of actually going and finding stuff uh, that not too many other people are paying attention to. And that's where I think I have the best chance of being able to make a difference and earn some nice returns. What drew you to call it the most hated sectors or the distressed categories? Is that kind of a personality tilt or was that just where you saw the most opportunity and, and dove in? Yeah, definitely a personality tilt. I have a hard time buying charts that are up. Um, that's something I've tried to get better at <laughs> and recognizing just because something's double doesn't mean that it's suddenly a bad investment. Um, and especially just because something is down doesn't make a good investment. Um, so I think that that's been one of the things that's been best to learn uh, before getting to manage other people's money was um, just being able to try and separate charts and prices of what, where something has been and just trying to understand, all right, forget all that, you know, what's, what makes sense here given the price it is today and the opportunity that's here today because I can't invest on last month's chart or whether or not I want to. I think a lot of investors when they when they start out or if they have that kind of deep value contrarian bent, they go for the new lows list, the 52-week lows list, and they see something that's cheap and they and they go, oh, this is cheap, like let me buy it. But then that next logical question, which is something that I've thought a lot about this year is is it's not enough obviously just to have a cheap price you need to understand why that opportunity exists for you and so why you're able to buy it for cheap and everyone else that can screen for the idea has passed on it like why they're wrong and yep. so do you have any examples of maybe some mistakes that you've made in the past where you've been maybe more mechanical and just and just looking for quantitatively cheap and then realizing that hey this was probably cheap for a reason that's not good for me yeah um, I think the worst mistakes I've made have all involved something where somebody that, you know, at the company, either in management or a lender had an incentive that wasn't aligned with mine. Hmm. Um, and so I found something that, you know, 
on nine out of 10 criteria looked amazing. And then I had to try and talk myself into this person's probably going to still do something that's in my interest. And that just does not go well for me. Um, so I really tried to get away from situations where I think there's adverse incentives for, for management, for lenders, for a board, what have you. Once you start um, seeing issues there, um, everything else can make sense. The company can be a great value. And it's a good chance that when that value gets realized, you're not going to see any of it. What's an example of some of these adverse incentives, whether on the board level or on the executive suite? Oh, man. Um, so there's been some. I'll, I'll think of a few recently. Um, there's one I was looking at where it was a company that had an external management agreement. So guys that are on the board have a separate company that's managing properties for this company. And look, I think there's value there. But I look at that and I say, these guys instead of this maximize their management contract, that's where they're getting their money from. Um, I was looking at another one recently where that hired a new CEO and people were really excited about this guy. He's got, you know, he, he bought some shares coming into this company. Um, but I went and looked at his last last company that he ran and he sold properties to the company that netted him like eight figures of income um, before pushing them into bankruptcy on two different occasions. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was like, all right. I mean, we see how this guy makes money and it's usually not by taking care of common shareholders. So, okay. Yeah, great. He came in and bought some shares this time, but you know, I don't know what his angle is. Maybe he doesn't have one. Maybe he's changed his ways, but you know, I don't really want to find out. <laughs> I remember one time I was looking when I was researching um, Ammo Inc., the uh, gun manufacturer yeah. out in Arizona. So I was researching them and, and the CEO. I read like in, in, in one of the filings, it was in kind of a small footnote. It was like, oh, hey, by the way, the CEO gave a loan to the business and the interest rate was like 18% annual. And this was back when interest rates were still, you could get them for like, you know, three, three and a half, five percent. Um, and I just looked at that and I was like, man, that is, that's kind of wild for a small cap company to, to charge, you know, to have the CEO charge the company 18%, 16, 18%. It's just, you know, stuff like that is like, all right, red flags go up. Yeah. Yep. And then you have to ask yourself like, all right, after I find something like that, like what would it take to get me comfortable again? And, you know, usually I just get to the point where it's like, I just don't think there's a thing and doesn't mean it's going to be a bad investment. doesn't mean it won't work for somebody. Um, just at least for, for my screening purposes, uh, once I'm concerned about adverse incentives, it's really hard to come back and be like, no, no, I want to own this. Yeah. So when you, when you look at ideas and, and maybe we can dive into your idea generation process is some sort of insider ownership or alignment. Is that basically a must have for you where everything can look right, but if management doesn't own a decent portion or if their options aren't you know, exercise based on certain like long-term shareholder friendly metrics. It's just an automatic pass for you. Um, uh, I've tried not to set anything too hard and fast there. Um, I just try to look at each situation again, figure out are these guys going to do best if I do best here? Um, cause like there's some companies you look at, um, I think people forget that not every CEO is just like insanely rich and has a bunch of cash to go buy his own stock and be super invested. I mean, it's also his job. Like he's got a salary, he's got a bonus. Like, and so it's a situational thing. I mean, there's got, there's times where you're like going to a company and being like, Hey, why haven't there been any insider buys? And it's like, well, he got granted RSUs each year and he's not selling them to cover the taxes. Then he's paying a huge chunk of the, the value of those 
in taxes just to hold them. People don't yeah. think about that. Yeah. Like, and it's his job. Okay. So like, yeah, maybe this guy only owns a couple percent of the company, but for him, that's material. And again, it's his job. So yes, he's pretty well aligned. It doesn't mean he owns 20%, you know, but maybe you've got a board member that does, or maybe, you know, there's some long-term incentive plan that says, hey, if you guys sell the company, you get like a five X your salary bonus or something. Like, okay. You know, he's got, yeah. he's got the I, right stuff here. I think, I think a good framework for this is the investment management business and particularly emerging funds. And, you know, I guess you would, you'd fall into that category, but if you have LPs, let's say very successful LPs and you're a startup manager yourself, your net worth on average is probably not as high as your most valuable LP. And so when you read these letters and you see these investors say, hey, you know, 80, 90% of my net worth is invested alongside yours, that still might be less than five to 10% of the actual fund. But yeah. they still say like, hey, like my entire net worth is invested in this thing. And I think the same goes for these small cap CEOs where investors almost give a bad rep for CEOs that only own two, 3% of the company, but then it's probably the same logic. Like, Hey man, like this is my entire family's net worth is in this company. Like between my salary, my stock and the bonus, like I am fully invested right alongside the business. Yeah. No. And like, I, I was looking at another company recently where there's like a, a fund manager involved that owns a lot of stock and he's got a really big loyalty complex to the community that he's in where this company's based. And so that just introduces a whole other set of like, that's, that's kind of the framework that he's using to look at this. It's like, oh, okay. So, you know, you, you have this view that like you're accountable to the people that you're, are around you right now in terms of how this situation plays out. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to work out right, but it's, you know, it's good to hear something like that where you realize that this person's thinking more than just about how to maximize dollars to themselves. Mm -hmm. So what's your idea generation process and, and how has that evolved over time? It sounds like you've, you know, started with looking at the new lows, 52 week lows and, and now maybe you've added a few wrinkles on top of that. So walk us through that kind of daily practice. Sure. And so to be clear, I know I said earlier, I, I go pretty unique places. I also generate very few ideas organically. Um, I've found enough smart people um, that I get a lot of good uh, suggestions and tips up from other managers, analysts, um, just friends that do this for themselves. Um, so that that keeps me pretty busy looking into new new tips. So uh, it really just, you know, I found people that have similar ideas. We swap ideas. We go look around for things in the same industry. You know, I spend a lot of the last 18 months looking at coal stocks because of how cheap they've been and, you know, some long-term opportunities there. So just, you know, <laughs> anything that's coal, I went and tried to poke around a little bit and see if this makes sense. Um, so now I feel like I've got a pretty good lay of that land. Um, you know, I think uh, retail is another area that I've spent a decent amount of time on. You know, I know a couple of guys that know that area really well and I can bounce ideas off of. Um, and I think the businesses are relatively straightforward to understand. You know, there's not too many key variables for understanding. Does this business work or does it not? Um, so I can kind of get my head around those more easily than, you know, out there doing some biomedical startup or something that, you know, like I, I, I just have no edge on stuff like that. So I try to stick to things where I either know somebody or am able to do enough work on it that I can get comfortable with the situation. So most of your ideas are basically kind of crowdsourced from friends and other and other managers and 
do you do you spend any time trying to you know do anything kind of i guess we'd say organic on your end and and if so what does that look like so it's funny actually one of my bigger positions for the last two years i found because i was researching a completely different stock uh and so i just started looking at the industry so i feel like it's more um like getting tips on areas that you know i keep hearing like oh there's a lot of people that are looking at you know office reads okay well you know <laughs> let's go let's go look at these and see if i can figure out you know why do they think this one's attractive is this really the one i want to own where are some other opportunities there because sometimes someone can say like wow look at this thing it's trading it like four times earnings then you go look at office reads like oh they're all trading it four times earnings yeah. like, so the, that one's not really special. So maybe I, you know, this isn't as good of an opportunity as it first seemed like, or at least it's not differentiated. It's just because the sector's beat up. Uh, and so going back to what you said earlier, it's like, all right, I'm trying to understand why are these things cheap? Um, so yeah, I don't do a whole lot of like screeners or really like, you know, going A to Z through a manual uh, type work like that. It's a lot of, a lot of ideas. And, you know, I've got, I've got watch lists sitting out there that, you know, are a couple hundred stocks. And I think, you know, I have one or two of those that in, in a given month will have a news item that makes me go, oh, I need to revisit this. And I've spent enough time looking at it, you know, hey, maybe this was someone else's idea three years ago. I look at it. I got a general idea of what's good, what's bad for them. Now it's just sitting there waiting for the opportunity. This might be it. Um, so, yeah, that's I enjoy kind of just understanding enough about that subset of stocks that I have gotten comfortable with. And now, Hey, this is, this is the time let's go yeah. buy it. It sounds like a lot of your kind of idea generation is almost like an industry value chain analysis and then finding what part of the value chain is both a like most easily understandable for you, but then B offers the greatest kind of asymmetric risk reward. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder, with that, you know, your largest position over the last two years, and again, you don't have to name names, but when you when you found that, it was it was because you were researching another part of the industry. So walk us through how that process worked, like that workflow. So you start here, you go over to this corner, that becomes interesting, and then you dive deeper. And this is, you know, maybe a question of research process in general, but within this specific idea that led to making it your largest position. Yeah. Um, so in that case, um, I was looking at, you know, all right, you know, where, you know, how, I found this weird company. I was trying to figure out how to value it. And they had a kind of odd uh, stream of royalties. And so it made me start going looking like, all right, well, what are some other good public royalty companies I can look at? And then, you know, I started just building lists of, you know, in these different you know categories, like, oh, what's a timber royalty worth? What's a coal royalty worth? What's an oil and gas one worth? Um, and just started stacking them all up. And then it made me realize like, all right, this one I am looking at, like, isn't that good of a deal. <laughs> if I want to go buy a royalty company, there's better options out there. Yep. Um, and so then I started looking at these other ones like, well, I thought that last one looked pretty good. Now let's, now let's dive into what these other ones are. Let's read some financials. Let's, you know, look back at historical returns. Um, and especially in that case, you know, I was able to find one that was like up 10 X uh, total return in the last, you know, 20 years, um, but still looked incredibly cheap and was pretty tightly held. And like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, I have a hard time buying stuff that's up, but you know, th this business has consistently delivered a bunch of value and it looks very attractive right now on some pretty undemanding assumptions. I'm probably gonna go buy some of this. So, um, you know, I was able to go meet with the management team. It was pretty small, pretty off the radar. Um, that one in particular, I was surprised enough, like, 
I enjoy Twitter sentiment and just, you know, it's not a perfect indicator, but the last like dozen tweets I could find about this company were all people just hating it. And <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So it's not like I have too much competition here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they had some good points and that, that was stuff that was good for me to be able to take to management and kind of talk about, you know, not quite as directly as like, hey, there's a bunch of people on Twitter that hate you guys. Can you explain why that is? Um, but just, you know, like, hey, there's some decisions you've made in the past that seem like they've, you know, had some consequences. Can you talk about how you're going to do things differently going forward? Um, and got some really encouraging answers on that front. I was like, okay, I'm kind of buying this at the point where they've, you know, frustrated a lot of folks, but they seem to have learned from what's gone wrong and they've turned the ship back in the right direction. Got it. And going back to the coal industry, you said you spent kind of 18 months or so diving into that space. Um, one name that I actually found, and you've probably uh, flip this rock over is Corsa Coal. And I found it when it was like, I man, I forget what price it was, but it was a couple months before it basically received half its market cap in cash yep. from the uh, like Department of Transportation or something. Yep. And uh, and so I was sitting there, I was like, man, coal looks interesting, found this little micro cap and then popped like 40, 50% in a couple months. So when you say, okay, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend the next 12 to 18 months studying this industry. And I, I, I just did this with energy kind of over the last, in probably the first quarter of this year, up until about maybe June, July, walk us through how you go from zero to one in a brand new industry. So something like coal, like, what do you do? What do you read? How, like, what do you listen to? How do you get up to speed? Sure. Um, so I think last year when I was trying to get up to speed on coal, um, I found, honestly, it was finding a few different guys on Twitter that were really paying a lot of attention to the space and they were doing spaces, they were posting, you know, different pitches for different, different ones of the companies. And, you know, that was where, you know, we're sitting over here looking at it going, oh, wow. Like, yeah, these are all cheap. So like, you know, we are, we are making more of an industry bet. Like none of these companies look expensive, you know, let's go try and figure out, you know, is, are we going to get killed here? What's the downsides? What, you know? Why is coal being treated this way? You know, is Met really going to revert to what it was pre-COVID? You know, all these companies are coming out and you know signing contracts for you know half their market cap and cash flow this year. Like yeah. this yeah. seems too good to be true, um, and it turns out it mostly wasn't. <laughs> they actually <laughs> earned a ton of money and gave it back to shareholders. Uh, it's funny you bring up Corsa because that was when I first ran across them was during that whole phase. They were kind of remember them getting pitched as like the last coal company that hadn't run up. Um, and it's good because the people I was following on Twitter had a lot of uh, warnings at that time about like, hey, you know, this thing may not be quite as good as it looks. I would be, I'd be cautious about their contracts. Well, it had, a, it had like a ton of debt that a lot of other coal companies didn't have. Well, yeah, and they were in the middle of a Department of Justice investigation. And there were just numerous things overhanging them where it was like, look, guys, this ain't it. Like there's... There's a lot of companies that are deleveraging in really good shape right now. And these guys may not survive in the best coal market, bull market of all time. Like, you know, slow, slow your jets here a little bit. Well, you know, fast forward the rest of the year, their contracts were awful last year. They earned no money. Everyone hated them. Stock went back to like 15 cents a share. So like 15 million market cap. And well, then they come out in November and they release a press release that says, hey guys, we signed contracts for next year to sell our coal at like 180 bucks a ton. 
And I was like, all right, well, even at your high cost, you know, 130 production that you've been doing, that's going to be close to 40 or $50 million of free cash flow, and you're still trading at a 15 million market cap. Like, yeah, they've got some debt, but it's like 25 million net, so like a 40 million EV, and they're just pretty much saying like, hey, we've got 40 million contracted for next year. And no one cared because they, you know, everyone was so burned from the prior year and the contracts right. being bad. And so, you know, to your point, oh, wow, this, this, now it's time to buy this one. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then fast forward to a couple of weeks ago and that, oh, by the way, guys, we have this 12 year, you know, settlement process that's been going on with PennDOT. They were cutting us a check for $23 million. Oh, this is getting better. <laughs> And this is one where, again, you know, people look at it and go, oh, it was 15 cents, you know, last fall, and now it's 50. It's like, yeah, but it shouldn't have been 15, you know, based on once the contracts were signed. And now that they're getting hand all this cash, like the debt risk is going way down. I mean, you know, it's it's one that's uh, going to be hard for a lot of people to buy because it's up, but it's also yeah. still getting it, you know, maybe less than one times for cash flow. So. <laughs> yeah. When you so when you go through this process and you and you flip over all these coal companies, how do you rank the opportunities from you know highest upside to lowest downside? And then how do you then go, okay, from this list, how do I choose which specific names to kind of express this bet in this industry? Yeah. So I took the easy way out last year and I bought Arch um, because they were kind of like, well, they're met and they're thermal. And they're going to be doing dividends and they're going to be doing buybacks. So they were kind of just checking all the boxes that these different companies were, you know, flipping between. I was like, all right, we're going to get a little bit of exposure to everything here. Um, and that worked pretty well last year. Um, they had some problems this year with uh, operations and, you know, they, their AMR and their buyback machine has kind of <laughs> won that race for the time being. Um, but that one was, you know, it, it, it checked a lot of the boxes. And as far as I could see, Arch had the best track record of capital return from 2018, 2019, kind of, you know, the last time that any of these guys had money. Um, so I like the fact that their management seemed well aligned. I like the fact that they had the best history of capital returns. I like that they had lower cost operations. Um, I like that they had exposure to a little bit of everything. Um, so it seemed like it was the best way to not get killed in case the story wasn't quite as good as it was looking last year. Mm -hmm. And so really you're kind of ranking these based on downside protection, not necessarily any sort of upside. Well, and again, this is where it's like all of them look so cheap. It seemed like you were going to make a bunch of money on the upside. So, you know, let's think about like, all right, if they're all trading at two times cash flow, well, which one do I seem least likely to get destroyed on if this isn't as good as it looks? Um, and it's funny, you know, you say that, but you know, at the same time, it was like, oh, well, Arch has lower cost operations. Like, well, their their realizations on you know, their net backs on Highball Met Coal have been lower relative to some of these other producers where their cost advantage has kind of disappeared. So, you know, that was one case where buying the lower cost producer really didn't end up benefiting me the way I thought it would because they're not making more money, uh, especially in a bull market where prices were so high that, you know, having a $10 a ton cost advantage stopped really mattering. And now we're back towards the lower points that you know, coal has been since COVID. And, you know, it's, they're not really making more money now either because their coal is, you know, getting a lower realization than some of their peers. So, you know, both of those are points where I didn't end up getting it right, but I still made a lot of money because the 
you know, general coal complex was just so cheap last year and didn't deserve to be. Yeah. I think I need to go back and revisit course of coal because I just, I just took it off my watch list after it popped and I'm like, I'm done with this. I should have bought obviously <laughs> hindsight capital 2020, but uh, uh, let's move, let's move on to January in 2021, January 10th, you publish destination XL price for bankruptcy despite liquidity runway. So walk me through that entire thesis. Like we'll dive into the business, how you, so how you found it and then the research behind it and what made you decide to pull the trigger on this name? Yeah. Now I had a friend that uh, used to work at a, at a fund and he'd been beating me over the head with this thing for a few months, uh, late 2020. And uh, I finally was like, all right, I will go look at it. Let's, let's go see what this thing is. Um, and you know, the key points there were again, like, all right, you know, we're looking at a 15 million market cap at the time, specialty retailer, big and tall clothing. We've got a few hundred stores. Uh, I was like, okay, they stopped burning cash after the initial first few months of COVID. They were kind of just maintaining sales were down like 20%, but it wasn't the end of the world. They were still alive. They drew down their revolver. They didn't have a going concern warning, even though they had some debt. It was like, look, they, you know, they have cash, they're operating, they're fine. Um, but one of the things that people have been missing here was, you know, if you go back and look, DXL had been a bad business for a decade prior to COVID. Um, I know quite a few people who have talked to me since who were like, I was short that thing for most of, you know, 2015 to 2020, and it was a great short. So I remember when like, I first saw this as a long pitch, it was like, really? These guys are you know, terrible. But they got new management in 2019, the new CEO in there, they had a lot of well-aligned shareholders and they made a lot of the right moves going into COVID. Um, he went back and looked at their commentary end of you know Q3, Q4, 2019. They were saying a lot of the right things. They were making some good moves. They were projecting like 2020 was gonna be their best year ever. Um, and then COVID ran them over. And so we never really got to see these guys operate in a normal environment yet, but you could go look at the moves they were making. It was like, oh, okay. Like they're taking the right steps to try and fix the cost structure here. Uh, COVID happened and the CEO who just got in there took a huge pay cut. Like there were, there was really good signs. He got in there one conference call late in 2020 and said like, yeah, there, you know, there's going to be a lot of insider buying in January. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's nice to hear. Yeah, and, they, and he told everyone that right before, you know, in December, they, you know, had put out a press release one night that says, hey, we're getting kicked off the NASDAQ because we got negative shareholder equity and we're not going to fight it. We're just going to go. And I mean, that night, like I've been, <laughs> I was still in the middle of looking at this thing and the stock's down like 30 or 40 percent after hours. And I'm like, all right, I think I just need to go buy some of this and I'll, I'll, I'll figure out exactly <laughs> what I'm buying here in the next couple of days, but this seems ridiculous because, you know, my initial work, it says this thing's not going bankrupt and it, the market cap is $110 million. Um, so yeah, so I'm sitting there putting the pieces together and I was like, all right, you know, this thing, maybe it hasn't been an amazing company, but they've had a lot of things that are starting to go their way. And you can make pretty conservative assumptions for 2021 that said they're probably going to operate cash flow positive. I think in my article, I said I was estimating it would be somewhere between negative five and positive 25 million cash flow. Yep. yep. Um, they ended up doing about 60, but that wasn't really. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Worked out better than I anticipated. Um, but yeah, we just 
sitting there and going like, okay, like I can make pretty undemanding assumptions. This thing is priced like it's going bankrupt, but you know, they have liquidity, they have an opportunity here. And if retail recovers and if these guys are as good as they looked in their few months of operating before COVID, you know, there's a lot of upside here. Um, and so, you know, just actually sitting down and putting it in a, you know, putting in a model and I've started, you know, figuring out some stuff on, you know, all right, what is their cost structure? Like they'd had, you know, there was five stores they'd had that this, like this high-end Rochester business they'd been running that was losing them money. And they finally had shut those down in 2019. Um, they'd been converting a bunch of stores from their old casual XL to their DXL brand. And they'd slowed that down. So like even their sources of what they've been spending cash on were going down. You know, they cut out some corporate jobs. It was going to save them like $10 million a year. Um, there was just a lot of things they had done proactively um, that were fixing, you know, what had been a really poor structure for their business. Um, so you didn't really need a lot to go right. And when you're, again, when the market caps $10 million and, you know, yeah, they've got $60 million of debt, but they have some cash, you know. That's about, I'm looking, yeah, I was looking at their balance sheet just from your article and it looks like at the time, so this was October 31st, 2020, they had, call it 15 million in long-term debt and then close to 70 million, looks like in their revolver, borrow, yep. borrowings under credit facility. And then they've obviously got the operating leases, but they had, like you mentioned, they had 21 million in cash, another 95 million in inventory. And yep. even if you kind of, you know, fire sale that inventory, you could still maybe get, you know, another 20, 25 million on top of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like this, like the balance sheet wasn't really like the worst balance sheet in the world, but like you had to have some sort of conviction that, you know, the next 12, 18 months would look a lot different than the last, you know, 10 years. Cause you also showed a graph of from 2011 to January. Well, well really from January, 2011 to, you know, I guess whenever you wrote this, the stock was down 93.4% during that time while the S and P was up 197%. Yeah. Yeah, no. And that's where, again, finding something that's been terrible for so long, you know, they've burned pretty much anybody who's been interested in the company and, someone who's made that much money shorting them is probably not going to turn around and then try and underwrite it as a long, um, you know, it's just like, Oh no, that's, that company's terrible. There is zero, you know, that, or eventual zero. Um, so, you know, there were, there was plenty of reasons why people weren't looking at them. Um, and I go into the inventory for a minute. I think this is one point um, I've been continuing to be surprised. Uh, I think people really, you know, with retailers and things like stuff like, Oh, they're discounting a bunch. Like, you know, I have, I've had people ask me on stuff like this, like, are they going to have to take inventory write downs? And it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, if you, if you look at their cost structure, even in Q3 of 2020, which is, you know, one of the worst times for a retailer in recent history, DXL was selling their merchandise at 55% margin. So, you know, like you're saying on here, like, oh, even if they fire sale that, they can probably get more than 94 million. It's like, no, they could, I mean, they were still selling it in a terrible environment during COVID at, you know, an equivalent of like $200 million. Yeah, they, you know, they have, they have other parts of their cost structure that impact their margins, but the actual inventories themselves, you know, that's not something where they were in danger of, oh, that's not a very solid number. It's like, no, they're selling it at 5% margin. 
you know, they have rent expense, they have corporate overhead. You know, they barely had any store expense at that point because they had like one guy sitting in each store because <laughs> nobody out shopping. Yeah. Um, but they, they just had a very, you know, a very strong balance sheet for what you would expect for something that was trading down like this. Yeah. Um, and they were very torqued to being able to recover. And, you know, all it took was a, a bit of a bounce back in consumer spending. And the next thing you know, we were off the races. This is a very Michael Burry-esque stock. Like when I when I read all of his Value Investor Club uh, write-ups, like if you would have replaced your name with Burry, I probably wouldn't have blinked twice. Would have been like, oh, like this is exactly the type of stock Michael Burry would would buy. Um, it meets pretty much all of his criteria. And so you you do the research, you do the work, you kind of you know figure out what the downside is you you say okay i don't have to make that many assumptions for this to go really really right how do you then position size for something like this yeah well so the nice thing about managing just your own money is that you can be more aggressive than when you're managing uh clients yeah. money so put a shitload into it <laughs> yeah the fact that I, the fact that i did not have uh, my fund up and running at the time certainly let me uh, get pretty aggressive here uh, especially when you know, the price was down in the 20 cent range. Um, honestly, the, the problem managing this one became, you know, it, it moved very steadily and quickly out from that point. And the hard part was not selling it. Mm. Uh, because like, I mean, if you read the article, I made the case that, hey, look, I think if people realize this thing is going to be okay, they put out some good guidance, there's some insider buys, I'm expecting you to hit between 50 cents and a dollar in the next few months. Which you know was coming out and still saying like, hey, I think this thing is going to be like a one and a half to you know five bagger in a pretty short time frame. So it was you know it, it was a fairly confident statement, but it was fifty cents you know maybe a month later. Um, wow. So you know I posted this beginning of January and yeah February beginning of February it was already fifty sixty cents. So in one month, the thing tripled off the bottom. So what do you do? What did you do? Well, what I did was look at what they actually came out and said in their guidance through the beginning of the year. And they pretty much said like, yes, we're going to do exactly what you were looking for. And no, we're not going to burn cash. I was like, oh, so this is really going to work. And so I sat tight. Um, I think, so what's funny is, you know, this thing 45 bags dropped the bottom, right? Well. In the middle, about a month after this, you know, after I published on this, they went out and did a capital raise at 45 cents. And this when the stock was trading at 60. And that was that was the biggest moment where I had to sit down and go, okay, like I thought this equity was cheap. Insiders just bought a ton. Why are they going out and diluting us 20% to raise five million dollars when you know I think this is fine? And the answer I came back to was looking at the insider ownership, looking at these guys' alignments. Like, all right, they're not doing this if they don't think this is best for the company. They diluted, they bought into their own dilution. So you had to let that one roll off. And I remember quite a few people at the time being really concerned about, you know, what does this say? Like, this must not be nearly as good of a deal if they're willing to sell shares here. And essentially, it was rooted in conservatism. They were able to, you know, get their working capital a little bit more right that way and not you know, not have to struggle to get the right inventory in stores for 2021. And so it worked out fine. But if I hadn't been as confident about insider alignment here, um, I think that could have been a point where I would have pulled the ripcord and moved on because certainly wasn't expecting that when, yeah. you know, 
I underwrote this as their file on liquidity, and they went out and did a five million raise and was like, <laughs> at a twenty percent discount to the closing price. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean there were some good parts to that, like there weren't any warrants involved, and it was like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a chance to report, and you go look at, um, you know, where they came out and reported uh, that that year in I think it was either late May, early June. Um, this was again. This was the second point where we had to, you know, step back because they came out and reported earnings that they they guided to like 20 million of EBITDA, and they did like 16 in Q1, and they barely raised their guidance. And so I'm Damn. sitting here looking at this and reading the call, and people were just like, "Wait, you know, if you guys just earned over half your guide for the year, and this isn't even like normally your seasonally strong quarter, like what's <laughs> Why is the guy that's going to like 80 million of EBITDA or something in that range? Yeah. And people like, oh, we're just being conservative. We're not too worried about, you know, like demand has been strong. And so again, it's just like, all right, they're coming out and they're giving a weak guide here, but the company is firing on all cylinders. And right around that time, um, in April, this thing hit uh, Value Investors Club. And that was after it already was up to $1.20. And that's another good read if you go back and uh want to pull that up at some point um but they someone else came out and said hey we think this stock's going to be seven or eight bucks by the end of the year and it hit nine so they nailed it um but going through they've been doing all these channel checks and looking at how the business was accelerating in march and april and i was like guys this thing like they cut all these costs they had a low base they were fine liquidity and now that it's really going like you know they did this capital raise and the business really accelerated right after that know that they probably could have waited another six weeks and realized yeah we don't need to do this um but they just had they were flush with cash relative to um what people were expecting they weren't going bankrupt and now that sales were exploding off a you know much lower cost base they were going to make a ton of money so you know it was this combination of being in the right place in the right time trying to understand things that were happening along the way that would have maybe made you sell if you didn't know as much uh, about what was going on there, have confidence in management and their plan. Um, but there was a point <laughs> when we got later that summer, early fall, it's like, all right, the stock's $5, the stock's seven bucks, the stock's nine bucks. And, you know, points along that way, you start looking at it and going like, all right, you know, we're, we're hitting the, this thing is over earning stage or looks like it's over earning. At what point do you need to sell? Um, and the other hard part, because when you something, you know, has been that good to you and you're trying to figure out like, all right, is it time to pull the ripcord? Um, in the case of DXL, um, you know, I, I had people coming to me and saying, oh, why shouldn't this thing trade at 10 times or 12 times earnings? And like, well, if you go look, especially retail over time, the number is five. Most of these things trade around five times. And yeah. yes, this has been great. It's been fun. But now that we're trying to argue for multiple expansion on a couple hundred store concepts, big and tall retailer, it's probably time to move on. <laughs> it's probably time to move on to something else. So yeah. when did so when did you eventually you know get out of the full position and 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 if you if you had to do it over again with you know the knowledge you know now would would you change anything about how you held it how much you bought like i mean obviously you would put 100% of your net worth leveraged into this <laughs> thing but like when you um when you when you go through those gyrations of you know going from 15 to 50 holding and then holding through that you know dilutive issuance like how would you kind of grade your 
uh, kind of ability and grade grade your conviction in holding? Yeah, so I definitely um, I, I did not make the mistake of holding everything. I did trim some at points along the way. Um, once it got to the two three dollar a share range, um, that was the point where I really had to start taking some off the table. I mean, you're looking at this thing that you know you're up 10x on it. Concentration wise, it was getting a little out of control for my my account, and it's like, all right, you know, just because this is going well, like bad things can happen to companies that are operating well. You don't really you don't want to be like 70% in one stock, um, you know, for, for any kind of period of time. So some of that was just needing to trim because of how much it had gone up. Um, but I really do think that there was a point some, somewhere between the, the $2 share range and the five where you started saying, all right, I don't know that I can justify more than this valuation. Um, for it, like I said, for anything other than multiple expansion and, you know, the other question that I ran into here was, I think this is something that, you know, long term, these guys are still talking about growing. They want to go open more stores. And that was where they got in, in trouble in the past. And so I think this is a better management team. But how big can a big and tall specialty retailer get in the US before they've saturated their concepts and they don't really have any good growth opportunities left? And I struggled to find you know, a lot of, you know, support for, you know, no, this should be like a 500 store concept. They're probably in the places they need to be at this point. Yeah. Um, and so then you're like, all right, well, if that's not what they're going to do. Or, you know, are they just going to pivot to capital return? Are they going to pay a huge dividend? Are they going to buy back shares? And they started buying back shares subsequent to 2021. Um, but again, you're looking at it and going like, all right, I'm not sure I can justify this valuation as especially retail concept. And so if we're hitting the point where share buybacks are the best thing we can come up to do with our cash and it might be overvalued here, then, right. you know, that's, yeah. that's not amazing. So, yeah, and overvalued, you know, I think it still is trading around five times. So I think for now, it's probably a pretty good use of their capital, but they're still talking about growth. Um, so this was one where, um, you know, maybe it works, maybe they can they continue to grow, but you'll see it's mostly floundered since the hit nine and it's traded between that and four, I think in the last two years. Um, and it's been a tougher environment for retail. They've held up pretty well, especially compared to some of their peers. Um, but you get now, now it becomes a, what, what kind of growth do I want to underwrite here? And what do I think they can do? And that's mm -hmm. a very different argument than these guys aren't going bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a totally, totally different argument, totally different convictions and assumptions you need to make around those to to make the returns that you did make in the past and even come close. I think it's funny on that post, the first comment on that post is uh, guys like, hey, this thing's up a thousand percent since you wrote this. Is that correct? Or did they, or did they do some stock split? And like, it must have felt good to reply to that guy and be like, no, yeah, that's correct. It's up a thousand percent since I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> No, and again, that's where, you know, you look at something like this and it just, you know, it worked out great. You know, if you sat down with me in January of 2021 and said, is this thing going to be a 10 bagger? You know, I would have been like, oh, you know, I, I guess you could argue for it'll get to two or three bucks in a couple of years if things go really right. But, you know, I didn't think that's where it was headed right away. I was arguing for 50 cents or a dollar. So, you know, you got to some of this was being in the right place at the right time and recognizing like, no, like things are actually getting way better for these guys. And, you know, maybe that was your initial, initial target, but like it's working. <laughs> when something's working, you don't have to get out of the way right away. Well, that's and, the whole beauty of buying really cheap 
Like you're buying, you're buying no expectations. And so any expectations is just gravy. Yeah. And there were, and there were plenty of people that looked at this thing in past and just said, Oh, it's a lot of leverage. Uh, it's not uh, historically it's been run poorly. Uh, you know, I don't really know that they have, you know, much long-term hope here. It's not, maybe it's a decent trade, but you know, if you go back through the comments, there's people in there that bought it at 20 and sold it at 35 and walked home feeling really good about themselves. And they did, they made a great trade. They made, you know, almost a hundred percent in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So speaking of, speaking of leverage, how do you, and this is maybe specialty retail in general, how do you view and account for operating leases? I know that can be kind of a, not a hot button issue, but I know certain people like to just assume that that's, hey, operating expense. Some people think that's, you know, debt should be added on top. Like, how do you analyze that? I think you need to pick one. Um, <laughs> I've seen people that try to put it in as an expense and also then try to capitalize it. Like, well, if you want to capitalize it and take it out of your operating expense, like, you know, go for it. But it seems a little bit unfair to be treating this as an expense and capitalizing it on the balance sheet. Um, I think for some concepts too, it really depends on, you know, what they're trying to do for companies that are trying to shrink. It's usually a lot more of a liability than ones that are trying to grow. Yeah. So I, I also look at it differently depending on what kind of company it is. Um, like if you're investing in a restaurant concept that's trying to double their footprint, you know, all right, you're going to treat these as debt. Like but they wanted to sign those leases. They, they want to grow. They're not, you know, this isn't something where they're expanding you know, they've expanded too fast and now they're trying to figure out how do we get out of all these leases? Like they don't want to yeah. close anything. So, you know, you can model that in their downside and say, oh, okay, if this thing really hits a wall here and they need to start closing stores, what's that going to cost them? Um, but I think it's a little unfair to try and hit retailers for those being both debt and an expense. And, you know, if that's what you want to do, then you're certainly going to only buy ones that are in a very good spot or own a lot of their stores. Yeah. Um, but that's just me. Another specialty retailer that I am interested in that I've seen you write about and tweet about is the children's place ticker symbol PLCE. Yeah. Do you want to walk us through that thesis there? I, I, uh, I have a, I have a soft spot for specialty retail. I'm a ever, ever since I, you know, just, I, I fell in love with five below when I was researching it. And so like any type of kind of specialty niche retailer, I immediately, I'm attracted to. So walk me through that thesis there and kind of what you see as the value proposition. Sure. So kind of like we talked about earlier, when you're trying to find something uh, in a space that's cheap, like retail in the last year has gotten really cheap again. Uh, so just kind of sifting back through these names and trying to figure out which of these I want to own. Uh, Children's Place stood out um, because that some of the issues they were experiencing were easier to uh, get comfortable with and some of these other retailers. There are some places that are just like, oh, demand's going down. You know, we're going to need to right side their cost structure, and you know, we bought too much inventory. Uh, stay tuned. We'll we'll fix this. Children's Place got run over by cotton costs and freight costs during end of 21, early 22, in a way that most of these other retailers didn't. Uh, and so you can go through their transcripts and I mean, there was 120 plus million of costs just from cotton and freight that went into their P&L and, you know, on their balance sheet in the form of increased inventory costs. And, you know, you were able to look at that late last year and see that cotton's back down, freight's back down, and there's about a nine month lag between those items and when they work their way through the children's place cost structure. 
So like, all right, nine months from now, all you know, these pressures that have been here will subside. But that th those are the, their two main headwinds. And Children's Place has also been way more proactive on their store base than a lot of these guys. Most of their leases are two years or less. So they quickly right size from a thousand store fleet to they're down at a little under 600 now and working towards five by uh, later this year. Um, and they're able to do that without some of the issues or buying out of these leases the way that some of their peers might have needed to do. They just said, hey, you know, we're, you know, we've been growing a ton with our direct to consumer sales. We've got a big investment in our Amazon channel that's really growing. Like we don't need a thousand store base anymore. This is a 500 store concept. They're quickly able to fix that. So again, you're looking at something where they're taking out a bunch of fixed costs on their leases. They're taking out, you know, a significant portion of their payroll uh, for store employees. They're downsizing their their corporate costs. And so you've got something again that's all right. You know, the the costs are going down. The in, the input pressures are going away. You know, you don't need to be too aggressive on your 2023, 20, 2024 numbers to see that this thing could explode on a low base. Mm -hmm. um maybe it doesn't you know i'm <laughs> i really try to be careful not to like go out and find a good retailer and say oh this is the next, next destination xl like, no <laughs> you don't want to be that guy <laughs> it's just not yeah i may never buy another destination xl and yeah. i will probably know it's the next one after the fact <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You know, i don't think children's place is gonna 45 bag here uh that'd be great uh i'm confident i won't own it for that entire time if they do um but you know i don't you know i think it's too cheap relative to you know what they're going to earn here in the second half and next year on a pretty conservative set of assumptions so we'll see i like you know anything that's got four sellers or observable cost trends that are have been a problem that are going away that you know it's got stuff that says all right this is giving you an opportunity and you can kind of identify why so we've brought that up multiple times at Destination XL, they say, hey, we're going off the NASDAQ. Well, everybody that owns it that needs to own stuff that's not OTC had to sell it then. Yeah. So you see it go down 50%. And you know, it already looked good at 35 cents. It looked really good at 20. Um, and it was four sellers. Those are those are the kind of people you want to be buying from. Um, so, you know, opportunities like that. I mean, Children's Place got kicked off an index. It wasn't as material as getting kicked off the NASDAQ, but you know, you're, you're trying to find things like that and say, all right, there's someone out here that's selling this and they're not doing it due to any analysis of the business. They're just doing it because they have a mandate. Yeah. yeah. Those are the kind of buyers that, you know, you can often do well just by being in the right place for those things. I should have asked you this at the beginning of the podcast, but what returns are you guys looking for as a hurdle at kingdom capital is it three to five x in three to five years how do you think about that um most of the stuff we're underwriting is we're you know our goal is you know we're looking at something we think can double um over a relatively reasonable time frame be it a year two years three years um knowing that hey maybe that's not what's going to happen but that's we're looking for stuff that at least has that kind of upside um you know we Kind of just depends like you were saying earlier about skew and saying like all right maybe this thing can do a three to five x but it can also go to zero so is that really the best place for our capital um yeah i think i think as a younger investor with less capital that stuff looks way more interesting and 2020 2021 was not a great place 
for dissuading people from those kind of investments because there was just stuff was flying off. You know, everything looked like an amazing buy and everything was yep. going up, you know, two or three X in a week at a time. Um, and then 2022 happened and downside protection suddenly became a thing again. And, you know, I, I'm less excited now about buying something where I think I can get zeroed than I would have been, you know, years ago. So yeah, no, we're, uh, our goal is to buy stuff we think can, you know, can go up a lot more than it can go down. So that's the skew is often what we're looking at more than just, you know, what do we think our upside is here? Have you looked at the container store at all? Uh, not that much. No, I know a couple of guys that like it, but I've never, never dug in there. Just thought about it because I was it was new lows specialty retail and I was like I gotta ask David about about that. Um, no, a couple a couple closing questions. I mean, we're coming up on on an on an hour here. Um, what are what are your goals for Kingdom Capital? Like what are like how much do you want to you know manage? Like what are your you know blue sky scenario? Like don't be afraid to kind of say your your long term goals for the fund here. We'll see. Um, well, for now we're mostly friends and family. Um, it's pretty hard to get strangers to come in and give new money managers with no real fund background uh, capital. So very thankful to the people that have trusted us up to this point and uh, we've done well by them and want to keep doing that. Um, so that's our main focus right now. I think the growth side, um, there's pros and cons. I think there's parts at times where I just want to say, you know, if we get a little bigger, we should probably just, you know, close this thing and focus on what we've got and, not try to get too big. Um, but you know, it's all relative. We'll see. Um, we are not yet at the point where we're struggling with we have too much money. So <laughs> there are many more opportunities than capital um, in the area we're playing in right now. So I don't know. My main goal, I, again, having having investors that are primarily people you know uh, really does help you focus on thinking about more than just like, hey, I'm gonna go swing for the fences and see what happens. Like, you really want to make sure you're doing right by your investors and make sure, you know, like, hey, these are you know, Thanksgiving's gonna be kind of rough next year if this doesn't go well. <laughs> That's funny. How do you think about portfolio construction? How many names do you hold, and what what's kind of the, a large position versus a small position? Yeah, um, we're in the generally in the 15 to 20 names at a time bucket um with uh, probably around half the portfolio and the in the top five of those names um and it, it fluctuates a little bit but um, for us a big position then would be you know something that's in the seven to 15 percent range um, okay. so you know we can go bigger than that and we have a couple times um in very specific situations but um i think concentration is one of those things that you know we had <laughs> We did a call with somebody recently that was asking about investing with us, and they asked us like how big we were willing to get, and their eyes kind of bulged out of their sockets at, at, at the suggestion that we could get, you know, more than fifteen percent in a single stock. I was like, well, you know, we've only done it a couple of times, and it's worked out great. But yeah, you know, it's we want to be really certain before we're going to do something like that. Um, but when you've got a when you've got a layup, you know, you also want to deploy a lot of capital into it. What's been the hardest part about trying to fundraise when you have, like when you take those, you know, potential LP calls, like what are some things that you didn't realize about the fundraising process before you launched a fund that now you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot different than I thought. 
Well, it's it's good that I have a business partner who's uh, who's better at that than I am. I think my assumption was we get on calls with LPs and they just want to talk about our stocks, and uh, that's what I want to talk about. Um, very very few other people really want to get into the nitty gritty on you know operating margins at the children's place. So um, yeah, I'm not the I'm not the best salesman, um, but yeah, people everyone wants to know how you're going to not lose money in a recession. Um, that's been the forefront of everyone's mind for the last 18 months. They don't know how you're not going to get killed on the downside. Um, so protection of capital is, is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. So we try to try to walk through that and explain, you know, and so far now we've got, we were, we were up over 20% last year and, you know, so in a tough environment, we can kind of point to that and say like, you know, we don't have a long track record, but for what we have, you know, we, you know, we took care of people and what they gave us last year and so far this year. So try and do our best with, with what we got. And besides coal and energy and specialty retail, are there any corners of the market or any countries that are, you know, kind of exciting you right now that you're spending a lot of time on? There, there's other corners in the market than those? <laughs> Believe it uh, or not, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's been some interesting stuff on auto supplier world I've been looking at. Um, a couple industrials. Um, there's been some. Uh, there's been a couple of radio stocks. <laughs> I don't look at very popular sectors, so but some people ask about like what we're involved with with AI. Like nothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what you're looking for. I'm not the right guy for that. Yeah. No, you got to go to Arc for that. <laughs> well, David, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, where can people go to find more about you? And I know you're on Twitter and you write at Seeking Alpha. So um, let people know where they can find you. Yes, that's definitely um, on Twitter. I'm uh, at KingdomCapADV. Um, spent a lot of time talking to people on there and bouncing around ideas. I published some on Seeking Alpha uh, under Kingdom Capital. And then our website is KingdomCapitalAdvisors.com. Our fund letters are up there and some of our, our past work and just a couple other, you know, little uh, links to some interviews and things we've done. Um, so it's all out there. Feel free to reach out, send me an email, DM me on Twitter, send me your best idea. Um, I may look at it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What an incentive. Uh, last question I have for you, David, if you could have dinner with any person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Uh, that's really tough. Um, and I didn't, I didn't send you an outline before this, by the way. So this is like straight up. You had no idea, unless you listen to the podcast, of course. But yeah, this is had so, no time to prepare. All right, I'll I'll pull up an old one. Um, growing up, I was a huge baseball fan, and okay. uh, I rooted for the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, who didn't have any winning seasons in my childhood. Um, so I was forced to be a fan of their prior players and Roberto Clemente. Um, was uh, was like my my guy growing up, um, so he'd be one guy that I would love to meet up with and hear about his experience playing in the majors back in the '60s and '70s. And uh, he was always a hero of mine for you know even after all he accomplished, um, when there was you know a need, he he went and got on a plane and was trying to help people in, in Puerto Rico that you know ended up crashing at the end of his career. And you know I just and always been impressed with his ability to, to sacrifice himself for, for the needs of others, even after all the fame and, and fortune he, would, he achieved. Um, so yeah, he'd be a guy I'd love to sit down and talk to sometime. 
Sweet. I don't think we've ever had that name on the podcast. So I'm I'm just glad you didn't say Buffett or Munger. Uh, would have, <laughs> it would have been a terrible ending to the podcast. <laughs> I'm glad I could go a little bit off the wall for you then. <laughs> yeah. Well, David, thanks so much again. Uh, best of luck at Kingdom Capital. You're one of the higher value people I follow on Twitter just for idea generation. Um, and so, you know, best of luck growing your following there and, and best of luck to the fund over the next coming years. Thanks, Brandon. I enjoy, uh, enjoy talking to you. You do a lot of great work over here and uh, looking forward to uh, future conversations. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.